0: Okay, so you remember the story of stone soup, right? A stranger arrives in town, no money, no prospects, no place to stay, but he manages to borrow a pot, boil some water, and throw in a stone. Ooh, this is going to be delicious. And pretty soon, the baker's wife comes sniffing around. Well, maybe that tastes good with some of these potatoes. Then the smithy rolls through. Stone soup, huh? Well, every soup tastes better with a few of my carrots. And the butcher's like, you gotta put some of that fat back in there. That's the ticket. And before you know it, everybody wants a piece of the action. This one's got a rabbit. That one's got some mushrooms. And when each and every person has pitched in, added their own little something, the stranger starts doling out bowls of soup and it is delicious. Now, some of the stories deride this stranger as a trickster spirit, someone who played a joke on the entire village and got away with it. But other tellings, they look at the stranger differently. A benign soul sent to bind the town folk one to the other. Which is it? <sighs> I don't know. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present All In It Together. Amazing stories about what happens when strangers lend a helping hand and what happens when they don't. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Now, our first story comes from Warden Donald Cabana, and you may remember him from a previous Snap story when he gave us an inside look at a gas chamber in the Mississippi prison. When Warden Cabana was just starting his career in corrections, one of his first jobs was as a guard at Mississippi's Parchman Prison, a farm prison, where the inmates worked the cotton fields and all the staff lived in houses on the prison ground.
1: It was at one point in time known as perhaps the most dangerous prison in America. What fascinated me most, however, about Parchman was the trusty shooter system. Selected inmates carried guns and guarded the other inmates. The first camp I worked in at Parchman, I looked for the fence and there wasn't any. And there was a little sign about 20 feet out that said gun line. And I asked this uh, inmate shooter, what's a gun line? And he said, well, it's an imaginary line. He said the inmates don't walk past that point or they're subject to being shot. It was a very effective system, brutal at times, but nevertheless very effective. Aside from inmates who served as trusty shooters, we also had inmates who served as houseboys. We had about 150 families who lived in housing on the farm. And we were allowed to have an inmate who did whatever you wanted him to do around the house, you know, from washing dishes to hanging out the clothes, cutting the grass, or whatever. The rumors circulated around the farm for months, and prisons are tremendous grapevines. There are no secrets in prisons. And the rumors had been floating around that the sergeant's wife was allegedly fooling around with George, the houseboy, who wasn't real smart. Uh, had a less than average IQ, and he was very easily manipulated. Allegedly, she started providing him with drink and sex. It had all the elements of a sleazy Hollywood movie because a white woman in 1971 Mississippi whose husband works in the prison and a black inmate. I had just pulled into my driveway. At our house, a call came out from dispatch that shots had been fired in the vicinity of Camp 11. So I got back in the truck and flew down the gravel road. I pulled up in front of the house. I knew something bad had happened because I looked over at the camp and the inmates were gathered around. They had heard the shots. The inmate, George, came out the front door. He had his hands behind him. He was sobbing and just kept on repeating that he didn't mean to do it. He didn't mean to do it. I told George uh, several times to put his hands out in front of him where I could see him. He didn't have a weapon in his hands. He had dropped that just inside the door. By that time, the officers had come out and um, said that he had raped The sergeant's wife tied her up, along with their two children, in a closet in the back bedroom. The sergeant came in unexpectedly and surprised him, and so George shot him. George had been drinking. The smell of alcohol was all over him. I found it curious that the sergeant's wife was very loosely tied up with a necktie with her hands in front of her, she didn't seem to be terribly distraught at the time, but at any rate, folks started gathering very quickly, of course. Corrections is a, is a family, and when something bad happens to one person, it happens to everybody on the staff. So a rather ugly crowd began to gather, and there was an officer who uh, actually all the rest of us made fun of all the time. We called him Super Chicken, and I used to swear that he wore his uniform to bed and never took it off. He would be the epitome of what a lot of people in other parts of the country would envision a deep South Redneck looking like with the tobacco juice, greasy black hair. He kept saying to George, boy, you go on and run, and I'll I'll count to ten and give you a head start before I get after you. And, uh, of course, George's knees were were knocking very loudly, and mine were as well. I said, George, don't believe him. He'd cheat, George. He wouldn't mean to, but he would, because the ignorant son of a can't count to 10. I was very concerned that other staff, they were gonna try to lynch him. They got uglier and uglier, and I handcuffed myself to George. It got to a point where I wasn't sure they wouldn't just go ahead and lynch both of us. The warden got there, and we very quickly got the inmate in the back of his car and drove him off. The next morning, the warden said, come here, I want to talk to you. So I went in his office, and he closed the door, and he said, this calls for an opinion, and just that. You weren't there any more than I was. What do you think happened? I said, She was screwing the convict. Her husband, he had a $20,000 life insurance policy. She promised the inmate she'd send his family half of that. And I said she put him up to killing him. He said, that's about how I got it figured. He said, well, he won't get the death penalty because this is an embarrassment to the state And he said, this guy's not very sharp, so they'll give him a court-appointed attorney and he'll plead guilty to a second life sentence, which is exactly what happened. Fifteen years later, when I came back as warden, I was sitting in my office one day, not long after I'd been there, and one of the staff members who was there when all this happened was talking to me and said, can I ask you a, a question? I said, sure. He said, have you ever, since that day, stopped to think about how close you came to being killed? Those people would have killed you. I said, no, nah, I, never, I never gave it any thought. Didn't think about it that day and never looked back. And I wouldn't hesitate to make the same decision again. Ah. Well, you know. That's the
2: sound of the men working on the chain. Gang, that's the sound of the men working on the
1: chain. Gang, all day long they're saying.
0: Brave man, Uh, brave man. uh, Now, Dr. Cabana uh, ended up serving as the warden uh, of Parchment Prison for many years. He was credited with uh, instituting more than a few reform minded changes. uh, That story was produced by none other than Anna Sussman. uh, Saying. now, sometimes, when they're all in it together, they're all out to get you. Especially when they're cool, and you're not. Snap. Stephanie Fu recalls a difficult story from a difficult time.
3: I didn't know what cool was until I met Trisha Pham. Up until the age of 11, cool was unimportant. Who cared about clothes and makeup when you could be reading The Emerald Wizardess of Tehanu? Then I laid eyes on her in my sixth grade math class. Cool was beauty. She had perfect skin, was willowy thin when she wore butterfly clips in her hair the rest of us flocked to Sally Beauty Supply and bought armfuls of them in an age where most of us were covered in blackheads and awkward baby gap clothing left over from elementary school trisha fam was fashionable and flawless it was as if she didn't live among us but above us i wanted to know her to inhabit her or at least to own her shade of lip gloss cool was lust My first awakening to the actual purpose of the other sex was the day everybody ran in from recess screaming that Trisha Pham and Joey Ng had kissed. On purpose. Apparently, this was no longer a gross thing. I remember the terror and sense of obligation this instilled in me, like I had been given some animal that I would have to take care of the rest of my life. Of course, that was the moment I fell in love with Joey Ng, but I didn't begrudge Trisha for it. She was the only one who deserved him. And I loved her most. Common logic doesn't apply in middle school. I could assemble all the evidence, Your Honor, that I was the only Malaysian in a school of Vietnamese kids, that my try-hard behavior must have come across as sycophantic and annoying, that I was a smart ass to her friends. But the truth is, none of that matters. I was ugly. She was pretty. That was the kindling. She lit the match. For years afterward, Trisha would go around telling people that she hated me, but I know it was just the opposite. Trisha Pham loved me in the way a lion loves a limping antelope. Now I know that you can't see me, but trust deeply that I look about as Asian as it gets. I'd make a reference to my yellow skin, but obviously, I've learned my lesson there. My middle school was 80% Asian. Cool was power. She commanded the masses and dictated what to watch, listen to, where. Her passions were our passions. Her hatreds were our hatreds. The crowd moved in the way that it always did that I always had. Unquestioning. Faithful. They swarmed to her side. They stood around me in a circle after school and shoved me back and forth like a ball bouncing in a box. When I walked into a room, someone would sniff the air and say, Does anybody smell something rotting? And everyone would hold their nose. Finally, they picked me up and threw me into a dumpster. I lay among banana peels and styrofoam cup of noodles. And though I was young, I knew then how important cool was. It wasn't just a middle school concept. It was a hierarchical order, the highest one, the divine talent bestowed upon the chosen few unto which this whole world is organized. And I knew my place in it. Things settle down as they do. Entropy is law. Trisha had seen what she was capable of, and she was done with me. I'm sure Trisha knew that the world was her oyster and she could own it if she wanted. I'm sure she told herself that she was going to move on to bigger and better things, but she didn't. The news reports said that Trisha was 16 and wasn't wearing her seatbelt, but I needed more. I searched the Zangas and live journals of Trisha's friends, which told me that Trisha had been hitchhiking to a friend's house that day. Two teenage boys pulled up and decided to give her a ride. They took a corner too quickly. The car lost control and flew down an embankment. It hit a tree. Trisha Pham flew out the windshield. She died at 5 p.m. On the blogs, people started to write things about Trisha that I'd never heard before. The fact that she cried about boys. That she fought with her parents. That when others were upset, she was always there. That she was a true, loyal friend. Trisha's face was everywhere for months after. On posters, airbrushed onto t-shirts. The ones of us left behind, the rest of us, wore her profile engraved on necklaces as we built her up to be more popular than ever. But the tempera-painted signs rang hollow. In the end, I think, we finally did realize how important it was to be cool. Not at all.
4: Used to be one of <coughs> the writing, writing, writing. like
5: you for that Used to be one of the writing, writing, writing. like you for that
0: Big thanks to Snap Judgment Stephanie Fu. Now, don't go anywhere. We've got psychics, Santas, Hezbollah, and people with very posh accents coming up on Snap Judgment's All in It Together episode. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the all-in-it-together episode. And bad things happen to good people, right? Bad stuff. When someone does something bad to you, a lot of traditions teach that you should turn the other cheek, be the better person. But how far should someone go to love someone else?
5: Rais Bouyan grew up in Bangladesh, in a household that encouraged strong Muslim values.
6: My mother told me that if anyone tells you anything bad or try to hurt you in any way, don't do the same thing to them. And I always try to maintain those lessons.
5: Rais did well in school and moved to the United States, landing in Dallas, Texas, with a job as a gas station attendant.
7: Oh my God! Oh my God! That looks
6: like a second plane.
5: Just after he arrived, he watched as his new country was attacked on September eleventh, two 2001.
6: I was shocked, and I couldn't believe that this really taking place. I was terrified. I was crying. So I was thinking that if that was done by some folks from Middle East or who practice Islam, then yes, there might be some sort of backlash.
5: Backlash against Muslims, foreign Muslims. And as days went on, Rais became more concerned. One night... A Muslim gas station attendant down the street from where he worked was murdered. And Rais overheard hostile conversations in his store.
6: There were a lot of customers, angry customers, to come to our gas station and um, saying a lot of bad things about Muslim people. I could feel there were people, they were coming to the store with a lot of anger. It was Friday. It was raining outside and business was slow. Suddenly a customer walked in wearing bandana, sunglasses, baseball cap pointing a gun directly at my face. I opened the register right away and I offered him the cash and I said, here's all the money. Please take it, but don't shoot me. In response, he asked me, where are you from? I was thinking that, you know, why he needs to know where am I from? That's a strange question to ask during a robbery. I didn't get the chance to tell where I was from. I just said, excuse me. And he shot me with a double barrel shotgun. I felt the sensation of million bees stinging my face. So I looked down, and I saw blood was pouring from the right side of my head. I thought I have to keep my brain from spilling out, so I placed both my hands on my head. And I looked left, and I saw the gunman was still standing and looking at me. So I thought if I don't pretend I'm dying, maybe he will shoot me to make sure that I'm dead. So I jumped on the floor, I pretend that I'm dying. Within a few seconds the gunman left the store and I was thinking that oh my god, I'm dying today. So I started crying and I remember myself screaming, Mom, I started reciting from Holy Quran.
5: Rais refused to die. He dragged himself up from the floor and stumbled to the barber shop next door but everyone inside ran in terror. All they saw was a frantic, bloodied, dark-skinned man coming through the door.
6: They tried to run away through their emergency door, and I told him that, please call 911. I start seeing image of my mother, father, and then a graveyard, and I, I thought, that's it.
5: He ran around the parking lot, too scared to sit still, until the paramedics came. Before falling unconscious, He promised God that if he lived, he would make the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj. Hours later, he woke up to the sound of voices.
6: And uh, I heard the female voice told me that, good morning, Mr. Buyan, you're in the hospital. That was a moment I will never forget in my entire life. I'm still alive. I could feel how life is precious. It doesn't matter where you are, in the hospital, in the prison, on the street, but you are still alive. You are still in this world.
5: Rais still has 35 fragments of buckshot in his face. He lost vision in one eye forever. A few days later, police arrested his attacker. His name was Mark Stroman. He confessed to killing two gas station attendants and shooting a third in the face.
6: After he was arrested, he, he voluntarily spoke to the local news media. He said he wanted to go and kill the Arabs. And that's what most Americans wanted to do, the killing Arabs or killing foreigners. He said he was brave enough, he's a patriot, that's why he killed people, and he wanted to kill more.
5: Stroman's sister was killed in the World Trade Center. He made a personal goal to murder people from the Mideast. His rage did not decipher between the Mideast and South Asia.
6: Yes, I'm a Muslim, but I'm not from Middle East, I'm from Bangladesh.
5: Rais was asked to testify at Stroman's trial. At first, he refused.
6: Well, I was extremely afraid even to go to the courtroom because all the time I was thinking that I'm the only survivor and maybe he might have some associates outside. They they will kill me.
5: But he walked into the courtroom and raised his finger to point at his attacker, Mark Stroman.
6: I was testified what happened to me. Do I see the person who shot me?
5: Mark was sentenced to death. After the trial, Rais actually went to the Middle East on the trip he had promised God, the Hajj, to Mecca. He went with his mother, and he forgave his attacker.
6: I forgave him because of my Islamic faith and the way my parents raised me, that forgiveness is the best policy. And after I came back from Hajj, I thought deeply, and I came out with this idea that the execution is not the solution here because we are not dealing with the root cause, which is hate.
5: So Rice met with the families of the other victims, and they all agreed they would work to save Mark Stroman's life. He met with lawyers and professors and learned everything he could about stopping an execution.
6: The first thing we did, we went to the local newspaper, Dallas Morning News, and requested a meeting with the editorial board. They published an article in their newspaper that I want to save the life of my attacker.
3: hate crime victim is attempting to save the life of a convicted murderer. Since he
1: sits
6: on death row. An unlikely champion is fighting to Starting save him. From the day one, I knew that would be an uphill battle. First of all, I'm in Texas. And the second thing is that Mark Stroman killed two persons and tried to kill mine. I was hopeful that, you know, since the victims of Mark Stroman, they forgave him. There's a hope that the government will listen to our request.
5: Eventually, Mark Stroman heard about Rais's work.
6: Well, the first time Mark heard about my campaign through his attorney, he could not believe. He was reduced to tears. He wrote me a beautiful and a big letter. It's a beautiful, nice penmanship as well I did you a very terrible injustice but you have still reached out from within to help me I don't know who your parents were but it's obvious they are wonderful people to let you to act this way to someone you have every right to hate I could feel the pain what this another human being is going through being behind bar and possibly going to be executed pretty soon
5: Raiis stepped up his effort. He filed petitions and met with judges. On the night Mark Stroman was due to be killed, Raiis was granted an emergency hearing to stay the execution.
6: And while I was testifying in the court, everyone in the court was crying, starting from the news reporter, attorney, even the judge, I could feel that his voice was shaking.
5: The hearing was the last chance, and it failed. There were no more options. Before his execution, Mark requested a phone call with Raiz.
6: So I kept saying hello, and I could hear from the other side, very low voice, Mark was saying, Hello, Raiz, do you hear me? I wanted to pass the message that, Mark, you know for sure that I never hated you, and uh, I'm doing my best to save your life. And in response, he kept telling me, Raiz, thank you so much for doing all this thing. I love you, bro. And I said that, you know, for sure that, you know, uh, likewise, I love you, too.
5: That was the last Rais ever heard from Mark.
6: When I, I found out that Mark was executed around uh, 8.53, he was announced dead. I just feel in this way that, you know, uh, a piece of my heart I, I lost. And I asked God that, you know, I also have mercy on him and, and forgive him what he did. And since my mom and dad, they were also praying for Mark room, and I called my parents and I gave them the message. They told me that, Rais, you did your best. And what we taught you, that's what you did.
0: Big thanks to Raiz Bouyan for sharing his story with Snap Judgment. To find out more about Raiz's work on stopping hate, we're going to have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman and Stephanie Foo. Today, we're exploring seeing yourself in another person, a stranger, making a connection and realizing that we are in this all together. And who knows these linkages better than someone trained in the psychic arts? Erin Auerbach recently told Snap Judgment her story.
8: When I was young, I feared that a real job with a desk and an entry level salary and maybe even a 401k was going to trap me for life in that position. And it was my biggest fear to take that kind of a job. I had had a lot of uh, what I would call mick jobs. I had been a barista, a stock person at a clothing store. I had done surveys. I worked as the soda jerk at the world of Coca Cola. I had been. Arthur the aardvark I wore a costume at Neiman Marcus in the children's department I couldn't seem to find anything that I liked so I picked up a copy of the paper and sure enough in the classifieds there was an ad phone actors wanted work from home make your own hours an ad for a telephone psychic real psychics are waiting with the answers to your questions The trainer said that some of the contractors made thousands of dollars and that they worked constantly. I said, what if I'm not a psychic? I'm not really sure that I'm psychic. And he stressed that we really didn't need to be psychic to do the job. So I went ahead and I, at his recommendation, I bought a deck of tarot cards, along with an instruction booklet. I worked from home. I was often in my pajamas because it was very late at night and I would call into the system probably about midnight and I'd stay logged in uh, till about four o'clock in the morning. People would call. Their first three minutes were free. After three minutes, there would be a faint beep. That's when the cost of the call would kick in, which was, you know, five dollars a minute was very expensive. They absolutely encouraged us to keep people on the phone as long as possible. They wanted the average call really had to be about 10 minutes. And the problem was is after a while, if you couldn't make your average phone call 10 minutes, they would eventually drop you from the system. So you had that threat looming over your head. It made me nervous because I didn't wanna fail, but I wanted to make sure that I could keep callers on the phone. I created what I call a nom de telephone. I created the name Anita. My first call was actually a good experience. Her name was Ethel, and she was older. And I only stayed on the phone with her for about seven minutes. She was really asking about, would her grandkids be okay? And I said, is there anything wrong? And she said, well, aren't you supposed to know that? I shuffled my cards. I read the answer. This first card is a really good positive feeling that's going on right now. It was a really nice conversation. Some callers were very sad and they just wanted a friendly voice to talk to. They were lonely and they needed to feel like someone was on their side. I had been working as a telephone psychic for about four months and then I got a call that really changed everything. This caller who phoned in was an 18-year-old young man from Alaska. His name was John. I started this phone call with my regular spiel, hello, my name is Anita, have you had a reading before? And this young man said, hi, no, I haven't had a reading before. I'm really anxious to talk to you. He launched into a very long explanation of his circumstance. His parents were both dead. He really didn't have anyone. He hated how cold it was in Alaska. He hated how dark it was all winter. He said, my question for you today is, I don't know what to do with my life. I think I want to join the military. I felt extremely nauseous because he and I had a lot in common. I was also lost, just like he was. So what do the cards say, Anita? I hadn't even touched the deck of cards in front of me, and I responded, honestly, I don't know. I got off the phone, and that was my last call. And it occurred to me in that moment that if I couldn't make great decisions about my own life, I certainly shouldn't be making them about someone else's.
0: Thank you, Aaron. That story, like so much of this episode, was produced by Snap Judgment's own Anna Sussman, along with Pat Messini-Miller. You may think to yourself, Glenn, calm down now. It is far too early to be talking about Santa Claus. Well, you can feel when Christmas starts sweeping New York. The tree goes up in Rockefeller Plaza. The snow, it piles on lampposts. And for Dylan and Jim... The mailbox at their apartment, on 22nd Street, starts to fill up with letters. Hello, my name is Jim
9: Glaub. Hi, I'm Dylan Parker. I was getting the letters about three years ago.
5: Dear Santa. Dear Santa, I want to go to the North Pole.
9: But never that many, one or two. And I didn't think anything of it. And then this last year, we had about 400 letters Santa delivered to us.
5: Santa.
9: I don't know. Santa. We are getting letters to Santa. And
10: each day, there would be more and more and more until the sides of the mailbox were practically buckling.
9: There are letters from the Bronx, Elmhurst, Queens, Manhattan, Staten Island, and upstate. Kids from all over New York and the tri-state area. I've always sort of suspected that our, our address is on a list
10: somewhere. We, we really just don't know for sure. And we've Googled everything we can imagine. We really haven't been able to dig much up on it.
9: Dear Santa.
5: Dear Santa. I live with my mom along with my sister and brother. My dad is a hard worker. I love to draw. My dad wants a jacket and shoes. Whatever you send will be great. Dear Santa, I have two brothers. Santa, I love you. I believe in you. For Christmas, I want anything you give me, and I'm gonna have the best Christmas ever. Stop with you. Dear Santa Claus, Hi, my name is Jean. I'm very good at school and home. I'm only asking for clothes because my mom can't get me clothes. At school they tease me because I wear the same clothes all the time. Christmas is my
4: favorite of the year. This year I want shorts any color. I also need a coat. Sincerely, Gina. Dear Santa, I'm 22 years old. I have two children named Ever and Osmar. They ask me every day if Santa will come this Christmas. I don't know what to say. Since I'm not working and their dad is not with me, my children will appreciate it if you send us some clothes, toys, and shoes. Merry Christmas.
9: I know it's heartbreaking. There's some that are just... They get to you. In most
10: of the letters that we've seen, it definitely seems like these are kids that they are in need. A lot of the letters are primarily asking for shoes, and for clothes, and items that I think most people would consider staple necessities.
9: When when we had these letters and they were stacking up in our office, when 7 turns into 20, which then turns into 50, which then turns into 100, and then I certainly did feel this overwhelming sense of obligation.
10: We both knew we had to do something with them, and and my feeling was that we should try to find an organization to do it, and and Jim really felt we could make a go of this, and we could really do something.
9: (laughs) I love Christmas. so In some ways, it was meant to be. (laughs) We had a party here at our house a couple of weeks before Christmas, and that's kind of what kicked it off, is that a bunch of the people from the party started to take a letter, and they would fulfill them. And it was like people got really excited. And I was like, okay, well I put all the letters in a bag and brought them to work and people from work started to fulfill them. And then started taking pictures of the letters and emailing them to friends who were interested on Facebook. When the story broke in the Times, I mean, like, we were recognized on the street, and lots of local community businesses were like, we'll take the letters next year. Our neighbors, you know, had left us notes on our door. People across the country actually decided to fulfill a letter. There was a gentleman in Taiwan who fulfilled a letter. It's just so great that the people have, have come together, and people were really, really excited about taking a letter. I've never been interested in finding out where the letters come from.
10: If we find out the real cause of why the letters are coming, that would take some of the magic away from it, I think.
5: I don't want a love for Christmas. There is just one thing I need. I don't care about the presents underneath that Christmas tree.
0: Do you feel good? I feel good. Thank you, Dylan and Jim, for making me feel good. We're gonna have a link to their Facebook page on snapjudgment.org. But they ask that you also participate in Operation Santa. Operation Santa fulfills letters to Santa from children across the nation. You can get your own letter at your local post office. This Snap Judgment, this is all in It together episode. We will continue in just a moment an epic journey in search of the most precious fluid of all what is it 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 it? stay tuned You're listening to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington. Today, we're exploring the power of strangers to lend a hand to problems that are not their own. Snap Judgment's Mark Ristich recently spoke with our old friend, Muhammad Baghdadi, about his struggle to save the life
7: of his mother. This is Mohammed Baghdadi. My name is Mohammed Baghdadi. He's an international high-tech businessman.
2: I am in the electronic publishing business. I have a company in the Middle East.
7: Mohammed travels all over the Middle East. His family is from Syria, and they are Muslim. And what, what kind of Muslim? Sunni. we Sunni Muslim. Islam is divided into different sects. You've probably heard of the Sunnis and the Shia. And you might know they don't really get along. They've been described as two sides in an Islamic civil war. So most people in Syria are Sunni, like Muhammad's family. But Syria is run by a small sect of Shia called the Alawites.
2: The Alawites are a much more secretive sect of Islam. We don't really know much about them.
7: But what we do know is that the Alawites of Syria support Hezbollah.
2: And because of that, Syria supports Hezbollah in Lebanon.
7: The Hezbollah in Lebanon are a Shia militant group and a political party. They dominate the southern part of Beirut. And this is where Muhammad's story starts when one day his father summons him to his mother's hospital bed in Beirut with some bad news. His mother's health is slipping and her life is in jeopardy.
2: My mom's out, she's in a coma, Um, she's in the ICU, and they say your mom needs blood urgently. She needs two of these units of uh, blood and this uh, blood type, which is a rare blood type.
7: Then the doctors tell Mohameda and his father, you need to find the blood. So okay, they go to the blood bank downstairs, but the man behind the counter has some more bad news.
2: He goes, I don't have any blood. I definitely don't have any of that, your blood type.
7: They plead with the man. Can't you do something? No blood? He says, I have a friend. I have a friend at another blood bank at another hospital. He calls him up.
2: He says, uh, it's too late, come back tomorrow. And the guy says to him, we don't have tomorrow. We need this now. He says, why do not you have him come down? So we say, great.
7: As they're leaving, Muhammad's father pulls him aside and he clues him in on the situation.
2: As we're going down the elevator, my father says uh, he was Shia. I go, how do you know? He says, by their names, by the way they're talking, um, and the hospital we're going to. It's Hezbollah. That was the implication at the time.
7: So now, as two Sunnis, they have to travel into the heart of Shia-controlled Hezbollah territory.
2: So we go down out front, and we have this driver, and we're going to uh, the Dahi. Dahi neighborhood in Beirut is the... Hezbollah Stronghold. The head of Hezbollah lives there, Hassan Nasrallah. So we're going to this area, and we start approaching, and you start to see every light post. A huge picture, middle of the street, of all the martyrs that were killed, well, suicide bombers. I pointed to one of the banners of the martyrs. And I asked, who's that? And this driver, he reaches back, he slaps my hand down. And he says, don't point. Don't point. They're watching. Hezbollah. Hezbollah. From all angles, from all cities, from all all buildings. Who, where are they? He said, they're everywhere. And I said, but I'm inside the car. He said, just don't point. Don't point. So we drive through fruit stalls, vegetable stalls, dirty. It's uh, rubble in the streets, war zone, hood. The worst you could imagine.
7: They get to a rundown hospital, and they make their way to the blood bank. We
2: find our way to the blood bank as a little room, and we, we get to the counter. We say,
7: we're here from the hospital. If you have any of this blood type, we need two units. And he says,
2: I don't have any. If you would have just told me yesterday, I would have found you some blood.
7: Mohammed's father is despondent, but his wife's life is on the line, and so he's not about to give up so easily, even if that means engaging in a bit of deception.
2: And my father starts saying, oh, "God bless you for staying in the hospital so late. Oh, we need this blood urgently." And he says, he refers to Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, in a way that makes the guy believe they were Alawite, they were part of the Syrian Hezbollah Shia Alawite thing, because they've given a title to the head of Hezbollah of Sayyid. The Sayyid can be like Sir, Sire but it could also mean Prophet. So he says, Hassan Muhammad, Sayyidna Hassan Muhammad. Our Sayyid, our Prophet. When he said that, that was it. He says, let me see what I can find in the back. Because the back goes, I only got one. Take one now. If you need, I can get more for you tomorrow. So we got a blood, he gave us uh, Bag of blood, he gave us a little ice pack. It says, keep this flat, and now i become intrigued. And I said, you know, you said earlier, if we had come yesterday, you'd be able to get blood for us. Uh, he said, yes. I said, how would you do that? And he said, well, I would, I would put it out on the wire, that we need blood. And I said, what wire? How do you do that? And he said, prayer time, call to prayer. Every imam call, during the call to prayer, every mosque in the area will state out loud in the loudspeakers in the streets, we need this blood type. And he said, I can have 200 people donating blood within 20 minutes. And I'm um, like, wow, that is incredible. So what occurred to me was that, you know, blood is a currency of war. It's the most valuable currency of war. You know, in peacetime, what do people want? They want the jewelry, they want their money, they want their cash. In wartime, what do you need more than blood? Somebody's dying in your family, and they need blood. You pay whatever necessary to save that person's life, right? Right. What you need is blood. It, it just—it was—it was fascinating. My father asked, "How must we owe you for the blood?" He said, uh, "Owe us." He got offended. so We don't sell blood. We can't sell blood. Then all the Arabic poetic thanks begin. My father was thanking him, "You saved my my son's mother," and thanking. Say Hassan, to reinsure safe exit from this part of town.
0: Dear listeners, not to fear. Muhammad's mother made a full recovery. All is well. Thank you, Muhammad Baghdadi, and thanks to the Uber producer, Mark Ristich, for bringing us Muhammad's tale. Now, as hard as it may be for you, dear listener, to believe, oftentimes when strangers band together, it is not in the service of good. Snap Judgments, Lindsay Lee Keel who frequents certain rarefied social circles of which I, of course, have no contact, she recently met a refined and debonair gentleman by the name of Stephen Jones. Turns out Stephen had much to teach on the ways of the world, and Stephen arrived at his information very early indeed.
4: At the age of 16, Stephen Jones was a budding white-collar criminal, going to a boarding school in England.
11: It was there that I learned everything that I ever needed to know about how to play a system to my own advantage.
4: Stephen always presented himself as a model student. He was social, did well in school, and ran the candy store in the dorm. He seemed so well-adjusted, the school assigned him a shy and quiet roommate, Christian in hopes that Stephen would help the kid come out of his shell.
11: You know, his parents expressed concern that he might not be you know, able to integrate very well.
4: So Stephen helped integrate him by suggesting Christian become the house treasurer, making him responsible for all the money coming in and out of the dorm.
11: And that meant that between the two of us, we controlled the entire inflow of money and outflow of goods around the whole house. We sat down and very effectively cooked the books such that by careful transferral of assets between the shop and between the school house funds, we could move money backwards and forwards, we could hide money that had gone missing, we could get things purchased on the school income finances and sell them on at a profit as part of the candy store. You know, we could pretty much write down anything we wanted in these books, it turned out, because... Who's checking the books? No one imagines that sixteen-year-olds are going to be embezzling.
6: I'm the operator of my pocket calculator.
11: We must have pulled about five or six thousand dollars out of the school as a whole over the course of that year. No, I spent it as teenagers do on pointless luxuries.
4: Stephen thought he had covered his tracks, but one day he was summoned to the office of the undermaster, the man in charge of discipline.
11: He had a reputation as a really serious, hardcore guy. And you'd be in this this sort of formal baronial hallway leading to this dark oaken door at the end behind which was your fate and you'd be left to sit outside on some ornate bench for 15 minutes while you sort of stewed and got increasingly worried and then finally like the door would open and you wouldn't see who'd opened it there'd be just a voice saying come It really was like some Hollywood interpretation of a, of a boarding school So I went into his office, you know, and he sits behind a desk with light behind him. And he was an old guy, you know, glasses, balding head. And he was looking at my file, which was surprisingly thick, actually. And I sat down. It was immediately clear that he could tell what had been going on. He could see what money had been coming in, what money had been going out, and uh, that he was fully aware of the scam. And he said to me but I see that your family is in Denmark and you fly to Denmark on a regular basis. And I said, yes. And he said, so you go through the duty free every time. And I said, yes. And he said, well, if you were to bring me 200 Benson & Hedges cigarettes, then we could forget about all of this. And so I began regularly to bring him a carton of cigarettes every month. He would say, more cigarettes this month, and I would say, absolutely, sir, and carry on my way. So I never had to suffer the hand of discipline in the school. It taught me yet more things about how the system works.
4: So Stephen added smuggling to his list of criminal activities, right next to embezzlement.
11: We absolutely continued the scam. Well, in fact, we refined the process after we got caught. You don't always have to be invisible you have to make it easy for someone like the Undermaster to look the other way.
4: Money, money, money Must be funny In the rich man's world Money, money, money Always It's a rich man's world
0: Thank you, Stephen Jones, for breaking down how the world really works. That story is produced... By Lindsay Lee Keel and Renzo Gorio. Now, don't be sad, don't be blue, be happy. Why? Because there is so much more Snap for you to explore on our website, SnapJudgment.org. Hit us up on the Facebook, tweet to me, on the Twitter, tweet, tweet, and even better, click over to SnapJudgment.org and tell us your own personal and intimate stories. you won't tell nobody, don't worry. Snap was produced by myself and the coolest group of nerds ever to dress up for a sci fi convention. Allow me to introduce the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Anna, drink it all, susman, and dance, dance, Stephanie Foo. Rita, don't sleep, Daniels. Where's the restroom, Jamie the Wolf? Renzo the Martini Goryeo. Our beatmaster, Pat Masidi Miller. And Lindsay Lee Keel, blues dancer. Will Urbina is no dancer at all. And have you ever taken two socks, put them in a dryer, and opened the dryer only to find one sock left? Ever wonder who took it? Well, just between you and me, blame lies at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Many thanks to them regardless. And if you take a little water and some public and some media, put it into a blender, what do you get? you get PRX, the public radio exchange, PRX.org. And surely, surely you know, this is not the news. This is not the news. In fact, you could get a job at a nuclear plant as a safety inspector, marry a little blue-haired cutie, drive recklessly down the street each and every day, throwing active nuclear material from your car towards your skateboarding sun before crashing into your own home and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is N.P.R.